0: Do you ever have those days where you feel like you just don't belong? Even if you are a part of a group, you just feel like you are the odd one out. You could even be seated here amongst people who you know love you and care for you. But deep within, you wonder if you were supposed to be here. And if anyone else feels like you do, feels like an outcast, feels like the one that doesn't belong. There might be a lucky few of us in this room that may not feel like this. They may feel as if they truly belong. But for the vast majority of people, there exists an existential angst that says, I am alone. I don't belong. I encounter this constantly in the counseling that I do, of Christians, of non-Christians, even within healthy relationships many of us wonder if we belong. And I wonder if that resonates with you this morning. Because of this underlying angst, and because it exists, oftentimes all it takes is one comment, one statement, and that button of sensitivity, that button of shame is pushed, and our feeling of exclusion is cemented. So when sections of text, such as last week, a week before, or this week, come up, I hope you can understand why I get a bit nervous. It's not that I am apologetic about God's Word. You guys know, you've been here long enough, that you know that I'm not apologetic. In fact, I am unapologetic about God's Word. But I get nervous because in handling God's perfect holy Word, my errant words and slight missteps could mischaracterize our righteous and holy God. With last week's text on sexual ethics and even some of my comments surrounding it, I wonder if there was anyone that felt as though they were excluded or anyone that felt shame because of their past. Especially if your sexual past is one like mine that is not spotless. Prior to following Christ, many of us have histories that we wish we could forget. And you may have wondered in our discussion last week, can God even accept me, given my past? You might have even thought, can God even accept me given my, the state of my heart right now? And so we must admit that these sections of text are hard. And we must recognize that as we reach out to a world that is so very confused, we need to empathize with the feeling of all who have fallen short of God's glory and that they do indeed feel excluded. Just as you and I often feel excluded, they feel excluded from God's grace. And learning that empathy will make us wonderful missionaries because in order to give them God's grace, to give them the gospel message, we often first need to connect on that point that they indeed feel excluded. So the question then presents itself, what do we do with a section of text like what we have before us today? A section that begins in many of your Bibles with an uninspired heading that says something like this, those excluded from the assembly. Oh, this should be fun, right? What do we do with this? And how do we process it? How do we let it form our view of God? Can we indeed be excluded from his love? So my goal for this morning is to step into this text with the knowledge of our usual feeling of exclusion and loneliness. But rather than dismiss this section or teach quickly through it, I'd like to unpack it fully, and in so doing, hopefully give you the context of Scripture that will help you explain it not only to yourself, but to anyone who might ask, about the Old Testament and its exclusionary nature. We'll use it as a case study for when Scripture confuses us. That happens a lot, right? And then I would like to use it as a background to the good news of the Gospel, that by God's grace and love, through His work of salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ, He has created a way for you and I to be welcomed into the kingdom of God, to be included, even though we deserve exclusion because of our sin. And so today, what we're going to look at is this. Good news for the outcast. Good news for the outcast. So without further ado, let's dig right in. And let's look at good news for the outcast through the whole of God's Word. But we're going to start with Deuteronomy 23.1. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now you can see why I didn't have Patrick read this. I figured I would take that on myself. Verse 2, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Verse 3, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. Verse 9, when you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal omission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp, but when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water, and as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not set anything indecent among you and turn away from you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, right? We got excrement, nocturnal emissions, male organs getting cut off. This is just all sorts of fun. Well, actually, it's pretty interesting because the first thing we want to talk about is that when reading scripture, we will see things that often confuse us. And in training you to read scripture and in training you to be apologists to the world for the gospel, it is very important that you understand that all of God's word is inspired and it's good news. It is good, but we have to understand what we do when we get confused because I think oftentimes... We skip over scripture and you think, well, I just have to dismiss that. But what happens when the non-believer comes to you and says, hey, so I was reading the other day and I found this chapter called Deuteronomy 23. What is up with your God? What do you say? And so when we see things that confuse us, as a general rule when reading scripture, we need to do this. Always investigate what seems confusing by looking at all of scripture. Always investigate what seems confusing by looking at all of Scripture. This is a huge training point for you. This is why it's important that even when you get stuck on something confusing in the Word, you keep going, keep reading. Put it in your memory banks and keep going. Read through the whole Word time and time again. That's why I love uh, year-long reading plans. You read through it every year. You start to get a feel for the fullness of Scripture. And at first blush, the Old Testament seems harsh. harsh. We have these scriptures here that talk about those excluded from the assembly of God's people. It seems to me that many read scripture as though there is a mean and nasty Old Testament God that excludes people on a moralistic level, and a good New Testament God in Jesus that includes people because he is gracious. You ever have that feeling yourself? Bad God in the Old Testament, good God in the New. Well, that's often how people view Christianity and view the Bible. But dear brothers and sisters, that view in and of itself actually violates scripture. Do you realize that? The Father and Jesus are two parts of the one triune God. They have the same heart, the same values. And it also violates the fact that God's character is said to never change. There is no shadow of turning in him. So what do we do with this confusion and seeming contradiction of exclusion in the Old Testament and inclusion in the New Testament? Well, the first thing we always do when reading Scripture is to look at the what? The context. We look at the context. And we do this in two ways. Through the immediate surrounding context and holistically in the narrative of Scripture. I repeat that often because it's what we have to do to know Scripture. We can't just pull Scripture out and use it out of context. That's what the world does to us to disprove Christianity. And we need to teach them to read it in context. And so first, let's look specifically in the immediate surrounding context of the verses. What we see here is that, as has often been the case in De- Deuteronomy, this is an issue of warfare. Look again at 2314. Because Yahweh your God, remember that anytime time you see the capital L-O-R-D, that's the Tetragrammaton, the Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, uh, from the, the uh, Hebrew that speaks to the great I Am, Yahweh. Because Yahweh your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, Therefore your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. This has to do with warfare. God is in the midst of the camp of his people Israel and he wants to fight for them against the pagan nations that worship false god, false gods. And so we can guess even if we don't know a ton about the Bible that this has to do with holiness regulations. Holiness that will get them to a place where they're tight with Yahweh, ready to go into battle with Him. And these are the issues of ceremonial uncleanness, not just arbitrary laws. If we take the laws out of context, they become arbitrary laws, and they're meaningless, and they can absolutely be used to form this mischaracterized view of God. What is it to be holy here? Well, it means to be set apart in submission and loyalty and allegiance to Yahweh, as opposed to all other false gods. And so if we read these statements through that filter, we get a greater understanding of what is being said here and what is not. For example, take a look at verse 9. When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. It says that when you're about to fight, you need the Lord on your side, so stay away from anything that is against him, against his natural order, against his commands, anything evil. And then, and then the next two items are seemingly randomly about a nocturnal emission of a man and defecation. And if you don't know what the first one is, kids, go ask your parents afterwards. I don't have time to explain that one. What wonderful topics for church here, eh? Right? Well, this, combined with the laws in the book of Leviticus about women's uh, menstruation periods, have largely contributed to this idea of genitalia and sexuality being gross. And we talked about this last week, is the false notion of sex is gross, so save it for the one you love, often taught in Christendom. Oftentimes, people grow up. Uh, I've even met with people who, when they didn't learn anything about sexuality from their parents, their parents were Christians, so they went and they searched the glossary of their Bible. Uh, literally, multiple clients who went and found Leviticus, read about sexuality, and got their view of sexuality from laws that had nothing to do with sexuality. They had to do with purity and holiness for more fair. Right, So they get this idea of sexuality being tainted and sick. But all we have to do is think through the fullness of Scripture and note that in the garden, Adam and Eve were naked and what? Unashamed. And in the New Testament, the Bible says that sexuality within the marriage relationship, the marriage bed, is undefiled. It says that in Hebrews. And so this can't simply be speaking of sexuality or sexual processes or anatomy as if parallel to defecation without any context. What we know from historical studies and archaeology is that pagan nations in the ancient Near East world utilized, and I know this is disgusting, but they utilized excrement and semen in occult-like practices and committed sexual sin in supposed worship to their gods. The short and sweet summary of verses 9 through 14 is, don't be like those who worship false gods and do gross stuff. Be those who worship the true and living God, Yahweh, and respect what he commands, such as with sexuality, don't be like the world. Revere the gift of sexuality and use it for what the Lord commands. That's the short and sweet summary of those verses. Because if we do that, then we stay closer to Yahweh. He doesn't have to distance from our uncleanness in sin and rebellion, and we are with him as we go into battle. They're holiness laws. And this view of holiness laws and keeping the people separate from their pagan neighbors helps us a ton with verses 1 through 8 as well. The surrounding verses are telling us that this is a set of regulations that are to protect the holiness of God's people for warfare. And so a review of Scripture thus far, even in Deuteronomy, will take the section here that talks about those excluded from the assembly and tell us that this is not just a carte blanche exclusion of people based upon their ethnic background, based upon uh, whether they have a male member or not, and various other things. Look, for example, at the idea of the foreigner among them. Look at Exodus 12, 48 through 49. If a stranger, and this particularly means a non-Jew, somebody who worships a foreign god, shall sojourn with you, and you would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. In other words, there's a way of conversion into uh, being um, Jewish, but you have to be circumcised. And there's also the innate statement here that a stranger can sojourn with you and not be circumcised. It's just that he can't take the Passover feast. It says, then he may come near and keep it if he's circumcised. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. So it wasn't that Israel just said carte blanche, close the gates, leave everybody out who's not like us. That is not the heart of God. But he did say, hey, there's a demarcation line. If you want to be part of our people, then this is what you need to do. Even early on, just after the Exodus, God was making provision for those who were not Israelite to be among his people, whether they chose to jump into full covenant faithfulness or not. And these were classified as sojourners. Look, even in Deuteronomy 10, just a little while earlier uh, that we looked at a few months ago. It says that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. There's an idea that God welcomes in those who are different. So we see clearly that God is not randomly denying access to certain groups. We get that if we take these verses out of context. But in the context of Scripture, even in the context of Deuteronomy, we see that there is a specific reason for exclusion here. And to understand this reason, we need to unpack the phrase, the assembly of the Lord. Now, we could spend a ton of time on this in linguistics, and I would love to because it would be super fun for me, but maybe not so fun for you. So I'm going to give you the basics here. The word assembly in the Hebrew is the word kahal. Everybody say kahal. And many commentators, not all, but many, because there is some disagreement on this topic, many believe that we might see the assembly here as a specific group of judicial or governing people within the greater community of Israel. In other words, these are the people that are the core covenant members, if you will, of the people of Israel. Another place that gives credence to this idea is in Leviticus 4.13-14. Notice that there's the topic of the whole congregation of Israel, and then there seems to be this group within that called the assembly. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, so you've got assembly and congregation, and they do any one of these things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. You've got to realize you had sojourners. This is a gigantic community of a few uh, potentially... Uh, I think a few million uh, people at this point, at least hundreds and hundreds of thousands. So you got sojourners coming in and out. It's not like they have gates to shut off the sojourner, but there's a core group within the overall community that is considered the assembly. And so in this case, and a few others within the Torah, it would make great sense that there's this demarcation line. And so these stipulations in Deuteronomy 23 are holding back men That would step into a decision making capability within the congregation of Israel, not yet having been fully converted into the worship of Yahweh. They may even be going, Yeah, I think I I really like this God of yours, but I'm not so sure yet. And we'll see that in the New Testament as well. For example, it was often the case in the ancient world that men were given positions of power within the court of kings and especially queens as part of the deal in pagan cultures what they would have to do is they would have to have their male member cut off. They would have to become a eunuch. If you wanted to be high-ranking in the court of a queen, like the Queen of Sheba, you would have to become a eunuch. You'd have to be one who was castrated. And so verse 1, then, might have been a statement to say, this person, fresh from paganism, should not be given a place in leading the people of Israel. If assembly means that smaller group of decision-making people in covenant with God. Likewise, those from Egypt or Edom, these should not be given a place until a few generations go by. In other words, Grandpa converts from pagan worship and becomes a sojourner amongst God's community of people, but he cannot lead the people as part of the congregation. He can be part of the overall community, but can't lead. But by his great-grandchild, his family would have become so acculturated to Israel and the worship of Yahweh that he could become part of the governing or judicial body of the assembly." And the forbidden union of verse 2 is another great example. It was a union between an Israelite and a pagan god worshiper. And the 10th generation here is an idiom, like our forever and ever. In other words, someone born of a union between an Israelite and someone who worships a foreign god, they can't ever be part of the assembly. Now why is that? Why would God be so harsh here? because there is a great likelihood that the offspring of that union could be devoted to the pagan god of their parent and influence the whole people of Israel away from Yahweh. And so what we see is that Yahweh is extremely protective of his people. Thus, when the king of Moab hired a pagan occult priest to curse Israel so they could be defeated, Yahweh did not listen to his words, but here it says he protected his people because he loved them. And that is the character of our God. And if you want to view God as harsh here, just think for a second as if you are a parent or if you were a parent, and somebody started coming around your house and talking to your kids and offering them crystal meth. How quickly would you get exclusive in who your children got to hang out with? How quickly? Go ahead and answer it. How quickly? Very quickly. Guess how quickly the leadership of this church gets in being exclusive when we hear people trying to feed bad doctrine and theology to you very quickly. It's like crystal meth to our kids. And so there's a reality that God is protective, that he wants to be careful and and care for his children, and that's the character of our God. And the people of the Ammonites and Moabites, they received God's particular disdain because they were so against God's heart that they cursed his people and refused even basic food and water to Israel as Israel transitioned through their land. Guys, these statements are not exclusive for exclusivity's sake. They are protective to make sure that the people of God do not get swayed in the direction of worshiping false gods and slowly but surely dwindle in their allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so while Scripture tells us that anyone could come and exist under the provision of Yahweh and His people, the sojourner, even the pagan worshiper could come and hang out. He just couldn't take part in the assembly. We see that there's this definite demarcation line for those that would be part of the group that was responsible for leading the people in the worship of Yahweh. This idea of the kahal, or the assembly, is not too unlike our idea of congregationalism in the Christian church in the New Testament. It's a line of demarcation. But Hans, you might say, this just sounds on the surface so exclusive and hurtful. And even if it is explained, you might say, in the way that you've stated it, it still is confusing. And I would agree. This is not an easy section of Scripture. Even commentators can't fully agree on it. But here is what I love about the Bible. If we look at all of the Bible and we still feel somewhat confused, Whenever I get into a pinch of confusion, all I have to do is one thing I have to look to Jesus and his cross. Because confusion about God's character is always cleared up by looking to the cross. Confusion about God's character is always cleared up by looking to the cross. This text before us is hard, it's hard to understand, it's hard to explain. And many are offended by its statement of exclusivity, and we must realize that. Man, in in implementing um, church membership, it's amazing to me, but I'm getting to understand it. How many people are hurt by this idea of a demarcation line? And at the same time, this idea, the idea of this exclusion in chapter 23, it exists in complete consistency with the rest of Scripture. And I'll show you why. Let me explain a little bit about these laws and really all of the Torah. All of the Torah, all of the law, was given to Israel for a particular reason. And it was not to make them an exclusive members-only club just because. It wasn't like God wanted to give them all leather jackets that said members-only on them. Any of you that were alive in the 80s, you get what that means, right? Which means pretty much none of you. Um, the like six people who are my age all got that. Um, It wasn't for God just to make it an exclusive members-only club. It was given to protect their relationship with Yahweh and to separate them from the religions and false worship of the false gods that surrounded them. It was to make them a people set apart. And this, in particular, was for a certain reason. And the Apostle Paul, praise God for him, he gives us amazing commentary on the law. And he tells us why it was so important in Galatians chapter 3. Can you guys turn there with me? Go to Galatians chapter 3. And all of us breathe the sigh of relief to move from Deuteronomy 23 to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, and take a look in verse 19 for me. The context that Paul is in here is that he's stating that God covenanted with Abraham by grace through faith for 430 years before the law was ever given. And his point is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was a God of grace. God covenanted with Abraham through grace. There was no law. It's not like Abraham could earn it through the law, which is often the misunderstanding that a lot of people have about the Old Testament. And so this totally contradicts the idea that the law was given to try and earn salvation or relationship with Yahweh. Let's take a look there at chapter 3, verse 19 in Galatians. Why then the law, Paul says. Thank you, Paul. Finally, somebody's asking the question. Well, it was added, he says, because of transgressions. Notice that word added. It's not the core of the relationship or the covenant. It was added. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Doesn't seem to be very much exclusion here, does there? In fact, there's No Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free. So the basic understanding here is that God made the covenant with Abraham and yet his people were getting sucked into the worship of the Egyptian gods. Remember, they were in in Egypt for 400 plus years. And so God saved them and freed them. They were already so far off the rails, guys, that when they showed up at the mountain and Moses was gone for a little while, what did they decide to do? They made a golden calf. You know where they learned that? In Egypt, they'd already started to move in that direction so bad that you can even go back. And as I've shown you before, they said, here are your gods, O Israel, that led you out of Egypt. They literally took Yahweh's name and placed it on this mischaracterized view. And so they were already getting off into the Egyptian gods. And so God saved them and freed them, and in the process, gave them the law. For what purpose? Paul says, because of sin. They needed a guardian. It's kind of like this. When I was young... As long as I just was responsible, my parents never gave me any rules. And one time I remember asking my dad because all my friends had uh, curfews where they had to be home at a certain hour and I never did. And I said to him, I said, Dad, why why don't I have a curfew? I don't know why I asked that. That's a really dumb move for a teenager, right? (laughs) And he said, well, Hans, as long as you're responsible, you don't need one. The second you show me you're, you're irresponsible, then I'll give you one. Abraham and his people were to act in righteousness and justice. And God was like, as long as you get righteousness and justice, go for it. Genesis 18. that didn't seem to stick. And so God finally said, you need a curfew, guys. And it's called the Torah. Here you go, 613 laws. And that's really what it was given for. But now, he says, there's no need for a guardian. There's no need for that curfew because Jesus has come and been declared Christ. So even on the surface, right here in the text, we can see that this guardian was one who protected the Jews from getting pulled off into idolatry so that from them, the Messiah could come and be devoted to Yahweh against all other false gods. You see, if the Jewish people had gotten pulled off into pagan worship, there would be no hope for us because a Messiah couldn't rise from them. A Messiah that followed Yahweh could not rise from them. And this is backed up by the fact that this word guardian, or in the Greek, it's pedagogos, it means one that protects a child on their way to their destination. This is the quote from the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. This is literally what the word means. In classical times, a pedagogos was a man, usually a slave, whose task it was to conduct a boy to and from school and to supervise and direct his general conduct. He was not a teacher. Now often this is mischaracterized and taught as this was a, the law was a teacher to teach us how badly we needed Christ. That's not the intention here. That you can get from the rest of Scripture, absolutely. But that's not the intention here. The intention here is it was a guardian. And as broken as it got in the relationship with Yahweh, the law was put in place to protect the Israelites in their worship of Yahweh. And that explains our text today. These laws were meant to protect the people of God from pagan worship. Don't allow someone who's a pagan worshiper into your assembly that will lead you in a direction off track. They are not statements about the acceptability of a given person and whether or not they belong to God. Let me say that again. They are not statements about the acceptability of a given person. Now, we know this for sure because once Christ came and the work of salvation on the cross and the destruction of the power of the kingdom of darkness was achieved, God no longer needed to maintain these tight ethnic boundaries on his people. Remember what we learned back in the book of Ephesians? Look at what Paul wrote. I know it's been a while now, but this is from Ephesians 2, 12 through 16. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated, outcast from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ Jesus came to the world and proclaimed to all mankind that the reign of the false gods over the Gentile nations was at an end. And then he gave himself over to the powers of darkness and was killed as a sacrifice for you and I, Taking on the sin and rebellious nature that had separated the Gentile nations from the Father. He took on the punishment that you and I deserve as enemies of God. And then he was victorious over that kingdom of darkness by raising from the dead and proving that he was the name above all other names. Amen? And in so doing, he destroyed the powerful hold of the kingdom of darkness over the nations and opened a way for those outside of Israel, those excluded to enter into relationship with him and with the Father by his Holy Spirit. Jesus made it possible for anyone, no matter their background, to be one with the Father. And as an act of beautiful divine irony, the book of Acts tells us that one of the first converts to Christianity was both a foreign man and a eunuch. He would indeed, by Deuteronomy 23's rules, be twice removed from the assembly of the Lord. So look with me really quick. Go back to Acts 8.26 and you'll see the story I'm talking about. Many of you already know. But let's go look at it. uh, Acts 8, starting in verse 26. This is an unbelievably good story to help us understand Deuteronomy 23. Because remember how I said people could come and even worship Yahweh. But unless they became actual, physical, circumcised, covenant Jews, they wouldn't be able to get to participate in all the feasts. Well, this eunuch is a follower of Yahweh. He went to Jerusalem for a festival. He's there. He's reading Jewish scripture. But guess what? He can't be a Jew. Why? Because he's a eunuch from Ethiopia. Even if he wanted to be circumcised, guys, I'm not trying to be gross here, he literally could not. (laughs) Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. Notice that he'd come to Jerusalem to worship was seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? Guys, highlight that, underline that, circle that because bad Pentecostal theology says all you need is the Holy Spirit to understand the Bible. If that were true, there'd be no pastors. Okay? You need a Sherpa. You need people who have studied the word and have gone through the word to help guide you. Just FYI, okay, just clearing that up because otherwise I'd be out of a job and I want to make that quite clear. All right, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophecy say this? About himself? Or does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, this is amazing, guys, because the church, while already being established and having baptism, you know where they got baptism from? They got baptism from the Jews because converts into Jews would have to step into what's called a mikveh, a baptismal, and be purified and washed. Now, this man who came to worship Yahweh in Jerusalem, he's never done that because he can't be converted to being a Jew. But because of Jesus, he can now step into God's people. He says, What's holding me back from joining God's people? Because baptism isn't a a mystical, magical rite. It is something that pulls you into God's covenant people. And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Amen? Here we see a royal official from a pagan land who chosen to be a sojourner in Israel. And what is referred to Uh, in in what is referred to often as a religious proselyte. Proselyte. He is a eunuch, and so he can't be made a formal member of God's people if it were based on ethnicity and circumcision. But he reads Isaiah 53, which prophesies of Jesus' sacrificial death in his place, and realizes he wants to be part of this people, this church, this God's people. And so Philip baptizes him, the signatory act of inclusion into God's covenant people, the church into the body of Christ, and it becomes part of God's people. Guys, if you've never been baptized, that's telling you to be baptized. Unfortunately, in today's evangelicalism, sometimes we often replace baptism with the sinner's prayer. It's amazing how many Christians I meet who are like, yeah, I got saved in you know, 2000. When did you get baptized? Oh, like 2010. Well, what happened in between? Oh, I just didn't think it was a big deal. Man, baptism is how you step into the new covenant people of God. So if you haven't been baptized, we'd love to baptize you if you're a believer. Well, this was an amazing down payment on the fullness of the prophecy that had been foretold by the prophet Isaiah regarding the fullness of God's kingdom to come. You guys remember what Patrick read earlier for us? This is Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Guys, I think some of you in here need to just stop right there and ponder that. I think often some of us, we think, man, the Lord has separated himself from me. I am so broken, so screwed up. There's no way that the Lord can want me. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my... "'I will give in my house and within my walls "'a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. "'I will give them an everlasting name "'that shall not be cut off.'" Even in the Old Testament, God was saying, "'Guys, my plan is not exclusivity for exclusivity's sake. "'My plan is to raise a Messiah "'that will draw in all people.'" He goes on to say, "'And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord "'to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh "'and to be his servants,' Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Well, these texts, they clearly tell us this. Through Jesus Christ, all people have the opportunity for inclusion into God's people. Through Jesus Christ, all people have the opportunity for inclusion into God's people. Deuteronomy 23 served its purpose. But it is one of the laws that we can say absolutely, undeniably was removed and not even was removed, we should properly say was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came, it was fulfilled and done and no longer needed to be placed. Jesus Christ fulfilled it. The Christ came, and He could then start drawing all people, Ammonite, Moabite, foreigner, to Himself. But even then, it wasn't as if God changed His mind. This was the same heart of God that was throughout the whole Old Testament. Because, dear church, we serve an amazingly gracious God. You see, no matter your past, no matter your background, you are called, I am called, by a loving Father God into His people, the church. And what is amazing is that He has not changed in this desire from the Old Testament to the New. God has always been this way. Let me show you what I mean by taking us to the Gospel according to Matthew. Go to the first page of the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. And here we have the genealogy of Christ, our Messiah, our Savior and Lord. And what we see when we read this on the surface is a bunch of names of the ancestors of Christ. And if you'll go back and check out my teaching on paternity and how important that was to the Jews, this is important. But I think often as Americans, we read through this and go, let's hurry up and get to chapter 2. What's included in this section and why it's so important is the story behind each of these names. And what we notice when we know the context of the whole of the Bible is that these stories give us a picture of God's character and a call for all to step into his people, even from the get-go. Guys, remember that Abraham, the father of the faith, was a Chaldean. He was a Babylonian. He was literally part of the people that were the enemy of Israel. He lived in Ur and worshipped idols of false gods. And yet God called him to be one with him. And amazingly, this section also, if we know the stories, it gives us the gospel message of what we must do to respond to God's call of inclusion. Let's look at a few of these stories. First, in verse 3, after it starts talking about the genealogy starting with Abraham. In verse 3, it gives us this story, Judah, the father of Perez and Sarah by Tamar. Now, for the full story of Judah and Tamar, you can go to Genesis 38. It's the entire chapter. And it is not one. Somehow, I've looked at every one of my kids' like cartoon Bibles and you know the, the storybook Bibles. Genesis 38 never makes it in, interestingly enough. Well, this is a horrific story. This is one, if a non-believer is paying attention, they're going to take you to Genesis 38 and be like, dude, what is wrong with you people? Right? Well, Judah is one of the 12 tribes of Israel married to a Canaanite woman and he conceived three sons. Okay? So he's married to a Canaanite woman. That's problematic in and of itself. Uh, But he conceived three sons and the first son died and it was the job in that day of the second son to continue the lineage of the brother by conceiving a child in that brother's name with his widow. That was how you would take care of the the procreation and the paternity and all that fun stuff that we talked about last week. But the second son was a bad guy, and uh, he would use the wife for sexual objectification and his own sexual pleasure. And then, unfortunately, uh, to tell you the story, I have to be kind of blunt with this, he would withdraw uh, before conceiving every time they were intimate. And God saw this and was angry and struck him down because he wasn't fulfilling his job to give her offspring that would care for her in her old age. It's a question of justice, not sexuality. Well, after the two of the sons of the three sons were killed, Judah did not fulfill the obligation to give his third son to her. And we can say that kind of makes sense. Child one dead, child two dead. Hmm. But he was supposed to give his third son to her. And in those days, being a widow with no children was an early death sentence. And so Tamar was desperate. And so she dressed up as a prostitute, covered her face with a veil, and waited for Judah to pass by as he was going to a certain town. And when he did, he propositioned her and went into her and conceived a child. But not before she took his identifying staff and signet ring as payment. When Tamar began to show a baby bump and everyone said, wait a minute, she's obviously been uh, fornicating, Judah was enraged. And he went and wanted to kill her and stone her because he accused her of fornicating. But when he faced her, she presented his signet ring and staff and told him he was the father. You the man, she said. That's Hans's interpretation. Judah immediately repented and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah. Now, dear church, you, can think, you, can, uh, you cannot think of a more perverted and broken story to declare the brokenness of mankind. Talk about an indecent and forbidden union, to use Deuteronomy 23.2 verbiage. And yet the children from this broken story, Perez and Sarah, are used in the story of God's work of salvation. They are literally part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Do you think God wants to draw impure people? Amen, he does. Then we also see the name of Rahab in the genealogy of Jesus. Look at verse 5 there. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. For the full story here, you can go look at Joshua 2 in your own time. Rahab was a Canaanite and, again, a prostitute in the city of Jericho. When Israel sent two spies into the land in Joshua 2, the people of Jericho hunted them down to kill them, but she hid them so that they could escape. And because of this, she was spared when Jericho fell, she and all of her family. And she went on to become a sojourner among the people of Israel under Yahweh's protection and provision. Matthew 1.5 also tells us that she ended up being the mother of a man named Boaz, who fell in love with and married a woman named Ruth. And Ruth, guys, was a Moabitess. Remember how it says in Deuteronomy 23 that no go for the Moabites, never ever shall they enter the assembly of God. And she was a part of that people group that was explicitly named as one excluded from the people of God, even to the 10th generation, forever and ever in the idiomatic sense. And yet God brought her in as a sojourner among God's people under his protection and provision. Those of you who know the story of Ruth. So was God confused in Deuteronomy 23? Did he change his mind? Was he going back on his word with Ruth and Rahab? No, he absolutely was not. The story of the Bible is that God has been constantly at work from Genesis 1 until Revelation 22. And he is still at work to draw all people to himself and establish his kingdom so that his people can dwell in peace. And there is still the possibility of exclusion from the people of God. I hate to say it. But it's true. What is that exclusion? Exclusion comes when there is an unwillingness to repent and to give your life over to Christ and submit to His people. Revelation 22, the chapter that tells us everything will be perfect and that tears will be wiped away from, the, from our eyes. It says that at a certain point, the doors of the kingdom of heaven will be closed and those who are unwilling to repent and bow the knee to Jesus Christ will be excluded We have to recognize that. And we have to be unapologetic about that. But see, it's not because of God. It's because of our rebelliousness. The God of the Bible has done everything to draw you and I into his loving embrace. There is literally nothing more that he could do to be inclusive. And so in a world and a culture that calls for inclusivity, I am dumbfounded that the world will not look at Jesus Christ and say, that is the God we have been looking for. He wants that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. He even gave his own son to draw us to him. Nothing could be more inclusive. And yet exclusivity remains if we refuse to repent and give our lives over to Jesus Christ. In Paul's letters, he gives a number of examples of those refusing humble submission to Christ, even within the church. And as a result, go read 1 Corinthians 5, they are excluded from the people of God. But when there is repentance and humility, God's arms are wide open, as are his people's. You see, guys, being a Christian is not about being perfect, but it's about bowing the knee to Christ. And so as a church, we need to be a church that is inviting to everyone. I laugh when I see the statement, all are welcome on church billboards because I think to myself, was there ever any other message? All have always been welcome and all are always welcome. Now, I completely get why it's there because many out in the community outside of Christendom have felt as though they weren't welcome. And I want to tell you, The God of the Bible says to everyone, all are welcome. But see, the Bible also says that all have fallen short and need to repent and bow the knee to Christ. There is not one person, you or me, that doesn't need to do that. And so God looked at a Canaanite woman a Edomobitus, and he saw their desire to repent, to worship him and be a part of his people. He looked at an Ethiopian eunuch, same thing. And he accepted them with open arms. And not only that, he used them mightily as an eternal reminder and illustration to those of us who feel as though we are alone or we are excluded. And that he desires for us to be one with him and his people, regardless of our background. These stories tell us that. And what is even more amazing in these stories is that we see within them what it is to respond to God's call and invitation to all people. In other words, what does it take to be saved? The Jews asked this of Peter. They said on his first big preaching day there in Acts, they said, what do we do to be saved? You've told us about Jesus. We want to be saved. And what did he say? He said, repent and be baptized. What is the response of one who desires to become part of God's kingdom? Well, here you go. The story of Judah shows us, and you need to be writing this down not only for yourself, but if you are already a follower of Jesus Christ, write this down, memorize it, meditate on it, memorize it, meditate on it, memorize it so that when someone asks you, how do I respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? You don't pull an Elmer Fudd, but you are able to tell them. Three steps. Number one, confess your sinfulness and repent. If you're sitting here today and you have never confessed that you are sinful at the core and that you are in rebellion against God at the core and want yourself to be on the throne of the kingdom rather than him, today is the day to confess that sin and repent from it, to turn away from you leading your own life and give your life over to Jesus. Judah shows us that when our sin has been pointed out, we are to confess and repent. It says right after he says she is more righteous than I, it says that he never went into her again, a very basic statement of repentance. He proclaimed his his daughter-in-law's righteousness and his unrighteousness and it says that he never approached her again. And repentance is to turn not only from the activity but from all you worshipped and honored before and turn instead to Christ and His ways. The Bible is clear that we all exist in exclusion from God's kingdom because we all operate innately in rebellion to His rule. And so the first step in accepting His invitation back And the sacrifice of his son in our place is to realize our need for it and to confess it. Well, secondly, is to proclaim our allegiance to Christ as Lord. In the midst of this repentance, we must proclaim that we are allegiant to the God of the Bible as God and his agent of salvation, Jesus as Lord, the God-man that came incarnate to this world. We get this picture beautifully from Rahab, What did Rahab do in Joshua 2? Man, she professed her allegiance. Take a look at this. This is a sinner's prayer if you ever want to see one. She said in telling the spies, they're like, why do you want uh, to help us? She said, for we have heard how the Lord, remember what L-O-R-D in caps is? She uses the name of their God, even though she's a Canaanite. How the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God. And if you look at the Hebrew, that's Yahweh. Yahweh, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Jesus, when he said that all authority has been given to me, he used that same phrasing. It is the name above all names, the king above all kings, the God that reigns. And she said, your God is that God. What a great proclamation of allegiance to the one true God. And then, as a response to Jesus' goodness, we then step into his covenant people. This is a hard one for people to hear today because we live in a society of individualism. But Jesus' action deserves a response. And in response to Jesus' goodness, we step into his covenant people because outside of his covenant people, there is no covenant. That's why when they asked Peter, what do we do? He said, repent and be baptized. Baptism is not a magical rite. It's not superstition to make sure we go to heaven. It is the action that puts us into the covenant people of God. It is declared in the New Testament to be the New Testament version of circumcision in the Old Testament. And so, much like Ruth did, when she proclaimed that she would walk with Naomi as an Israelite, here's what she said in Ruth 1.16. Ruth said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go, I will go and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything, but death parts me from you. I'm wondering if we should change our covenant membership oath to that. Nervous laughter. (laughs) That is joining the covenant people of God. You see, dear church, no matter your background, the loving Father God is calling you to be His own. And just to be totally clear, church membership has nothing to do with salvation, but being part of His church is the proper response, whether that's a church with membership or without. God is calling you to be His own and His people are extending open arms to you. If you are here today and you know that you have not been walking in the fullness of life devoted to Jesus, it's time to confess your sin, to repent from it, and to proclaim Jesus as Lord and step into His covenant people. If you've not done this, this is your application today. You need go no further. Repent, confess, proclaim allegiance to to Christ as Lord and step into His covenant people. It's time to recognize that your sinful rebellion against a good and loving creator God has indeed excluded you from his kingdom, but not by his will, by your own. He has called you to be his own. He wants you to be one with him. And so I would beg of you to give your life over to a compassionate and merciful God that has done everything to open a way into relationship with him. If you have done this, and you are one who exists in a relationship with Christ, I want you to recognize today that you are no longer an outcast. In fact, your identity is a child of God. When the enemy of God tries to isolate you from the body, when he starts breathing lies into your mind and heart that you are alone, that you are not wanted, that you are the odd man or woman out, I want you to know that he is trying to pick you off. He's trying to make you the gazelle at the back of the pack that he can devour. But don't let it work. Proclaim to him that you are not an outcast. You have in fact been gathered into the people of Christ and we have your back. You are Christ's and he is yours and you belong to one another in the fellowship of of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, I want to call all of us this morning to recognize that we live in a world of outcasts. We work, we go to school, we live near people who have been told internally or externally that they are not welcome and that they are outcasts. You may even have people in mind right now, family members, co-workers, neighbors, who believe that they are the oddball that they are the one who's too sinful for God to save them. I want you to pause right now and call to mind anyone in your life that might feel as though they are an outcast. And I want you to write down on a piece of paper, in a notebook, the name of that person. Go ahead, do it right now. I don't see any pens moving. Write them down. They may be a believer that has long since left the church and don't feel like they belong. They may be a non-believer who believes that they're never welcome in the church. I want you to write their name down in your notebook. And I want you to commit to praying that they might be drawn to Christ through you. Why that particular prayer? Because that puts the responsibility on us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you have the power to do so. Man, I want to be a church for the outcasts. I also want to be a church that takes the outcasts and makes them into powerful, powerful soldiers in the army of Christ. And we can be the ones that draw them in. And you may even think as you write down their name, there is no way that uncle so-and-so or aunt so-and-so or my neighbor so-and-so could be reached by God. They are so far gone. Let me tell you a really quick story and then I'll be finished. I had a basketball coach, a female wonderful woman who I loved dearly. She was very hardened on the outside. And even in my lapsed understanding of who Jesus was, every once in a while, I'd talk to her about Jesus as a teenager on that AAU team. I didn't know really the gospel at all, but I'd throw out this and that that I heard my parents say because I thought I was supposed to. God uses even imperfect people, guys. And she would fight back. And you know, her favorite phrase was this, Hans, if I ever step into a church, I will burn up on impact. That was her phrase. And I remember thinking to myself, man, if there's somebody that's lost, this is the person, right? And then I started to walk with the Lord years later, and she kept coming to mind. I kept thinking, man, Lord, I know you're powerful, but that, that person, there is no way. She had such a dark past, such a hurtful past, so much abuse, so much harm. Well, years later, and I'm talking years later, I'm sitting inside a gym, working out, doing shoulder press or something and sitting there. And in my line of sight is this woman. And it's her, but she's got makeup on. The first time I'd ever seen her with makeup, she's all done up. And man, she's got a smile that literally starts at one side of her forehead and goes the other side. I mean, the biggest smile I've ever seen. I don't know that I saw her smile in the decade I knew her prior. And I walked up to her and I said her name and I was so excited and she gave me the biggest hug. And I looked at her and I said, You look so happy. What is going on? And she looks at me and she says, I finally figured out what you're always telling me all those years. Some person who knew her finally got her to go to a small Bible study. And in that Bible study, they didn't even go through the Bible. They just loved her. It was like what our community groups are. She had food with some people. She felt loved by some people. And the leader of the group sat down and just had a quick word of encouragement. It wasn't even really from scripture. It was just that you're not an outcast. And there was something that happened in that moment where the Lord touched her heart and she started going to that group. And slowly but surely through those friendships, eventually became part of that church and then accepted Jesus. And then went with part of that group to go plant a church in Philadelphia. Then came back and is attending a church. Still following Jesus, still keeps up with me on the one social media outlet I'm on, LinkedIn. Don't try and find me. And she's still following Jesus. And she told me in that conversation that myself and multiple others, Catholics, Protestants, they'd all been telling her about this Jesus guy and she just refused. And then one day it clicked. Guys, if you think that someone's far from Jesus, you gotta think again. If a Moabitess, if an Ethiopian, if a eunuch could be reached by Jesus Christ, the outcasts, so-called, of Deuteronomy 23, then Jesus can reach anyone. We need to be a church that commits to acting in his name to proclaim to every outcast in the world, regardless of what their ethnicity is, regardless of what their sexual orientation is, regardless of what their past of sin is. We need to cry out to every person who's like you and like me that feels they're an outcast, that Jesus is the God of the outcasts and that his gospel is good news for the outcast. I don't usually use this translation and I wouldn't suggest you do for intense study, but I couldn't pass it up. The good news translation of the Bible takes Luke 5.32 and says this, Jesus was quoted as saying, I have not come to call the respectable people to repent, but outcasts. Can I get a hearty amen? If you're a person who feels like you're an outcast today because you don't walk with Jesus, come talk to me in the back during worship. I would love to pray with you about following Jesus. You're not too far from him. If you're a person who's been following Jesus, but you've been walking in apathy, your apathy or your sin has not pushed you aside. Let the foreigner not say that God has left me. God is with you and he wants you to follow him in passion and zeal. And if you're the person that's zealous for him, then you have been recruited and trained and commissioned in the army of the Most High King to go and proclaim that we serve the God of the outcasts. Don't ever think that anyone's too far from Jesus. Amen.